Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of a covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood, destroy all life. Thanks, Greg. Let's pray together, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we're gathered together as your people a people that you have created. You have rescued us from sin, from ourself, from selfishness, and from the judgment to come. Through our faith in you, thank you that you are our Savior. And we gather now as your people, expectant, Lord, wanting you to speak to us, to our hearts. So speak, Lord, and give us ears to hear. And may your words flow through me, and may, may they be only of you by the power of your Spirit. Guide our time. Bless it with your presence. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, on the day I got married, I stood before friends and family and shared my vows with my wife. Not very well, because I tried to memorize them and I forgot halfway through. <laughs> Not recommended, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) But I still promised to stick by her, to love her through thick and thin. Now, I didn't have a very clear idea of what I was doing that day. I was just, you know, doing what I thought you were supposed to do to get married. (laughs) But after 28 years of marriage and walking through life together and experiencing all kinds of things in our lives together that I could have never anticipated. I, I think I have a clearer sense of what it meant when I stood before friends and family and made those promises. Because I've, under, I've come to understand marriage as a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship where you commit to one another and those promises you make when you covenant to one another on your wedding day provide an atmosphere of trust that as long as you follow through on those commitments, on those promises you made, it frees you up to love one another in a relationship of trust. That's what a covenant is meant to do. 
You make promises, and that is meant to inspire trust and care so you can go deeper in your relationship and love one another through thick and thin, through whatever comes. That's what a covenant does. It allows the relationship to grow in trust because of the promises that are made and carried out over time. Now, as many of you have experienced, if that covenant is not honored, if trust is broken, then the relationship flounders. And it's really hard to rebuild that trust when it's broken. But a covenant is meant to bring freedom, and relationships only work well when there can be trust in a relationship, whether it's a business relationship or a personal relationship. And actually, as we'll see today, covenant relationships, a place where trust can flourish, are God's idea. They're not ours. He came up with it in the first place. In fact, over time, God has made a number of covenants with his people. And as we look at the covenant with Noah this morning, the very first clear covenant that God made in the scriptures, we'll see how God gave it so that Noah could be secure in his relationship with God. And think about Noah for a minute, why a covenant relationship was so important. I mean, Noah had just spent a year on a boat with a bunch of smelly animals. And he had watched all the rest of mankind be wiped out. He'd come through and been rescued from that judgment. But now he's standing on dry ground finally again. But he had to feel, I would think, a little insecure. I mean, you know... I'm not perfect. Um, God, you judge them. What about me? Am I secure in my relationship with you? And so God makes a covenant with Noah and with all mankind to follow, including us. Makes a promise that he would never wipe out all mankind again until the final day of judgment. Okay? He will never destroy the earth again. It will not happen. Because he wants us to be secure in his protection and his care and not fear judgment. So he makes a covenant with Noah. And let's explore what this means because it gives us some guidelines for how he wants us as people to live in relationship with him. And he gives us some responsibilities we see in the text. And then he makes some commitments as well in this covenant because that's what a covenant is. It's a solemn agreement between two parties on how you will relate to one another. Now we see the first responsibility of us as human beings in the way Noah responds to God. And the first responsibility we see is to worship God. That all mankind, our responsibility, our first responsibility is to worship God. Let's look at this. Verse 20 of chapter 8 of Genesis. Noah's just gotten off the ark. And it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Everything on earth has died except what's on the ark with Noah and his family who is with him. And his very first response, as soon as he touches ground, is to build an altar of worship to God. Isn't that great? I think he had a clear sense that God had rescued him and that that was his new identity. So he takes clean animals, 
Now, later they're defined what those clean animals were, later in the law, but in this point, Noah understood, I guess through the Spirit of God, what the clean animals were. And he sacrifices them as an act of worship to God. Now, why did he do this? Were these the most obnoxious animals on the ark that he spent a year with? And he thought, I'll take care of you guys. (laughs) Well, I don't think so. I think he understood something that to honor God, to have a clean, pure relationship with God, it takes sacrifice. And we'll explore that more in a moment. But especially what I noticed about Noah is that he had a sense that I've been rescued. Everybody else was wiped out, but I'm a rescued human being. And therefore, his response immediately is one of thankfulness to God, worship to God. He had a proper sense of the heart that if you've been rescued by God, you ought to worship him. Now, I want to contrast this with, I think, something we all struggle with in our culture, every one of us, because it's so built into our culture. And that is that we live not by thankfulness and worship, naturally. What we live by is a demand for our own rights. We live in America. The Declaration of Independence declares that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are wonderful gifts. But see, when they become our central way of approaching life, when they become at the core of how we view ourselves and our identity and how we live our lives, we get into trouble. Because if I'm out pursuing my rights, and everyone else is too, we will be in conflict. If we feel like, I have a right to life. I have a right for my life to go well. I have a right for liberty. I have a right to be free to do anything I choose to do. Doesn't this sound like our world? If I have, I, I have a right to pursue happiness, even if it gets in the way of other people's happiness, So happiness begins to drive us and we begin to think, I have a right to be happy. I have a right to have things go well. I have a right to feel good. I have a right to have a spouse that treats me better than this one does. I have a right to be comfortable. I have a right to be able to buy whatever I want, even if I can't afford it, and on and on. And this demand for rights has so consumed our American culture that we've lost a sense of who we are. And too many of us as Christians have bought into that attitude. So contrast that with Noah's response. Lord, you've rescued me. I worship you. Everything I have, my life, any freedoms I have, any happiness I have is completely a gift from you. Everything I have is a gift. I find this is a major struggle in my own life, but I'm finding God moving me more and more to realizing who my identity is. I am a rescued person. I'm just somebody that God has chosen to give grace to, and that's my identity. And so that means that everything I have, the very air that I breathe, any relationship that I have, even the hard things in life, they're gifts to me from a loving God who is working out his grand purposes in my life, and I get to be part of that. 
You see how that changes the way you approach your life? Rather than demands and conflict, it's thankfulness and joy in whatever gifts he gives you. So Noah does an act of thanksgiving and worship, acknowledging who God is as the rescuer and acknowledging who he is as one who has been rescued. We have a philosophy of worship here that we put together, the elders put together, and the key beginning statement is this. Worship is all that we are, mind, heart, soul, and body, humbly responding to all that God is as he reveals himself, initiated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. God had revealed himself to Noah as one who rescued him, though he didn't deserve it. God has revealed himself to us as one who has rescued us through Jesus Christ, though we don't deserve it. And therefore, our primary, primary identity as the people of God is as a rescued people. That's who we are. And therefore, our proper response is one of worship, thanksgiving, praise to him. And all through the scripture, God reinforces this. He wants the people of God to see themselves as a rescued people. When God rescued the people from Egypt, the nation of Israel, and formed a nation, he said, celebrate the Passover regularly. Never forget that you are a rescued, redeemed people. You've been redeemed from slavery. And he told us, as the New Covenant, New Testament people of God, to celebrate communion regularly, to remember that we are a rescued people. We have been forgiven by a Savior who took our place. And that is our primary identity and therefore our proper response in a covenant relationship with the God who has saved us is thanksgiving and worship. And notice God's response. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And that word soothing or pleasing is literally rest, restful. Noah's name means rest. It's the same word as Noah's name here. God smelled the aroma and he delighted in it. It gave him a sense of his heart at rest. No more judgment on mankind, but a sense of peace and rest because Noah is worshiping him, responding to him with worship. And so he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I'll never again destroy every living thing as I have done. He says, I know mankind hasn't changed. Back in chapter 6, he said, every intent of his heart is evil. Here in chapter 8, after the flood, every intent of man's heart is evil. But he says, you know what? I am covenanting myself to respond differently. I am covenanting myself to love man and provide an opportunity, a way of escape, a way of forgiveness. I will not destroy the earth again until the final judgment. Why does God respond this way? Because what he delights in more than anything is a proper relationship with us. He longs for that, so he covenants with us. And he delights in it when we worship him with a thankful heart. That's what he longs for. It's interesting that what Noah does to worship God is he does a sacrifice. Now, we find out later in the law that sacrifices are necessary to approach a holy God. 
Noah had that sense apparently. So he sacrifices these clean animals as a sign, I think, for us, a predecessor for us, for the later sacrifices in the law, and ultimately for us, the ultimate sacrifice, the one on the cross of Jesus, who gave his life for us. That the way we can approach a holy God is not through what we've done, not by doing it right, but through what he did in shedding his blood for us. Beautiful picture of that. And in the New Testament, this is described for us in the book of Hebrews, where we are exhorted in, verse, in chapter 10, starting in verse 19, to approach this holy God, to come to him in worship because of the blood that was shed by Jesus. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He wants us to come, as Noah did in worship and thankfulness, approach the throne through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, What about us, though? I mean, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus covered us, right? So, So we don't need to do sacrifices, right? I mean, we don't do sacrifices to approach God. No, we don't. Jesus' blood was once for all. It's been covered. But does the New Testament teach anything about sacrifice? Are we to come to him? What, What does that look like for us? Do we sacrifice somehow for God? Well, actually, we do. I want to read a couple of passages that describe that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice what Paul says there. He says, Our means of worshiping, of sacrificing, is to lay ourselves on the altar. Not to kill an animal, but to lay ourselves and say, not my will, but yours be done. I will follow you. My my life, my body is a sacrifice that I give to you, Lord, because you have rescued me. As a response of thanks, I will give my life to you. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 15, The author of Hebrews writes this, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there he says, hey, what we're to bring to him as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and worship is praise. Thanks. In doing good, seeking to love others, seeking to care for them. That's the kind of sacrifice we're to bring today. So man's first responsibility, we see Noah living out here in this covenant relationship with God, is simply to come in worship, to recognize we are a rescued people and respond in worship and thankfulness as a result. Another responsibility he gives us, I think, in the next few verses, as he talks to Noah, is 
to cherish life, to cherish life in a variety of ways that he describes. You see, God directs Noah and all mankind, all of us too, every man who's lived since then, descended from Noah, we all are, is directed to live out our humanity in a way that cherishes life, especially human life, but also plant life and animal life as well because they're gifts from God. And he goes on to say it's because man, especially because we are made in the image of God. Verse 1 of chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So God reissues the command. He's now destroyed creation and now he's recreating it after the flood. And he reissues the command he gave back in chapter 1 to Adam and Eve. And he says, fill the earth with life. See, God loves life. He created it. It's wonderful. And he says, fill the earth, multiply Fill the earth with life. It's a gift from God. Then in verse 2, he says this, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Back in chapter 1 again, in the original creation, God said, rule over all the animals. But, I think our task at that point was much more difficult because they were not afraid of us. But now God says, from here on, I'm going to change their attitude towards you. Animals will be afraid of you to make it easier for us to carry out that command to rule over the animals. But it also gives us a great responsibility because that means we can easily dominate the animals. But God wants us to be good stewards of the animal kingdom. How do we know that? well, I think he wouldn't have saved some of every species on the ark if he didn't want us to preserve them as followers of a holy God. So he wants us to take care of creation, to rule over the animals and to not abuse the animals. Let me read a little from Dr. Bruce Walkey, who says this, Today, people spoil the creation by polluting the atmosphere with carbon." contaminating the land and sea with garbage and toxic waste, raping the land by strip mining and clear-cut harvesting. They wantonly hunt animals, fish, and birds to extinction, exterminating plants, and preserving vegetation only if it has the, the potential to advantage them. But people have a responsibility to care for and preserve animals and plants. We have the power of life and death over the animal kingdom, as we've seen in verse 2. The intentional repetition of the phrase, every living creature and all life, affirms God's desire to preserve every species. The human ruination of the earth's ecological systems and the annihilation of species are matters of grave concern to the Creator. Grave concern to the Creator. So he's called us to be good stewards to care for animals and the creation around us. Then in verse 3, he says this, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. You may recall back in chapter 1, it's God created Adam and Eve. 
He said, I give to you every green plant for food. They were vegetarian. Noah was a vegetarian. Enoch, Methuselah, all of them were vegetarians up to this point. And now God says, you know what? Uh, I want to bless you. I want you to care for the animal kingdom, but I also want you to enjoy them as food. In other words, he's saying, enjoy a good steak now and then. Nice, tender chicken breast, you know, Enjoy lobster now and then. I mean, he's saying, I've given them to you as a blessing to you, as a gift to you for food. Originally, only the plants were given for food, but now he says, enjoy animals for food. And then notice what he says, verse 4. Only you, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. He says, don't eat blood. Why is that such a big deal to God? He says it a number of times throughout Scripture. Well, notice he says the life is in the blood. He wants us to see how valuable life is. And we know that the life is in the blood, right? I mean, it courses through our system. It brings life to every cell of our bodies. And if your blood gets spilt out, you die. And so they had a sense that the life is in the blood. He wants us to value life, even animal life, And so don't drink the blood. I think that's part of the reason he says that, but I think there's another reason. In cultures of that day and all through history, people have had a pagan idea. That pagan idea is that because the life is in the blood, if I could somehow consume the blood myself, I could extend my own life. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to consume blood to see if I can extend my own life. And that's been true of pagan cultures all through history. You say, well, that's yeah, that's a far-fetched pagan idea. A movie came out last week, Twilight, based on a best-selling book. It's about vampires. Some of you have probably read it or seen, seen the movie. And the good vampire who's lived a long time because he drinks blood He's from a good set of vampires that they drink animal blood, not human blood. But the bad guys, the bad vampires drink human blood. And so that's part of the conflict in this very popular book and movie of our day. You see, it's right in line with this pagan idea that somehow if I can consume the blood, I will live longer. But the truth is, it doesn't. Many, many Different cultures do consume blood, do eat it or have throughout history. But I read just this last week, if I read it correctly, that the oldest woman in the world died at 115 years old. Um, You know, we just don't live longer than that. We don't extend our own lives. God's in control of life. And I think that's what he's saying here. Cherish life, but leave it in God's hands. He controls the beginning and end of life. Trust God. Him. Don't try to control it yourself. And then he says this in verses 5 and 6, where he institutes capital punishment. Notice what he says. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made 
man. God says human life is so valuable, I'm instituting capital punishment. Did you see that? What he's saying there? Human life is so valuable because it's made in the image of God. Now, you know, you can look at uh, different... Uh, in our culture, man says that, you know, we are just another animal. We are no different than the other animals that are out there. Our DNA is almost exactly the same as a chimpanzee. So therefore, we're all the same. And in fact, the evolutionist thinking, modern evolutionary thinking, is that if man is just another animal, then animals should be protected at least as well as man is. And in fact, maybe more so because they're more vulnerable than us. And so you just get crazy thinking out in the world where babies are aborted and people think nothing of it, and yet they protect the eggs of an eagle. It's not wrong to protect the eggs of an eagle, but what God is saying is that human life is more valuable than animal life or plant life. And if you take that thinking to the extreme that, well, we're just another animal and therefore a rat or a fly or a sparrow should be protected just as much as human life, then you end up with thinking that leads to abortion, euthanasia, infanticide, assisted suicide, etc., etc., Now, God delights in plants and animals. He created them and he wants us to protect them. He saved every species in the ark. But he says only man is made in the image of God. And therefore, if anyone takes a man's life, man or woman, obviously, it's generic, then his life should be taken. It's that valuable. It's that important. Now, later in Scripture, he develops this whole idea a lot more. He he makes it clear that revenge is never acceptable. You know, you killed somebody in our family, so we'll come over and kill somebody in your family, etc., etc. That's, that's never proper in the Scriptures. Later we see that only Israel, the state of Israel in the Old Testament, had the right to take a life, and only on the basis of proper witnesses and proof and everything else. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, it says, God has given to the state the right, the sword, which really is talking about capital punishment, the ability to take life if someone murders an innocent victim, murders an innocent victim. But we, as New Testament believers, I mean, I think if a murderer truly repents, we want to forgive them, absolutely. But there's something very important about this that we must not forget. Human life is so valuable that if an innocent life is taken, and God says, that life should be taken, or the ground is polluted, the land is polluted itself. I want to look at Numbers chapter 35 and read a couple of verses there because I think it's very significant what it says. It says in verse 30 and following, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Moreover, you shall not take a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that's shed on it except 
by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live. So if a land takes, there's innocent blood being shed and there isn't justice, capital punishment, he says the land itself becomes polluted. Very interesting. Now, I understand the whole issue of capital punishment is very hard and difficult in our country because, um, because it's not always just and you want to make sure you never take an innocent life and it gets caught up in the courts and there's all kinds of problems with it in our country. I understand that. But I think we need to understand God's value of human life to the point that if an innocent life is taken, that the ground is polluted unless the murderer, their life is taken. That's pretty profound. And it raises the question for me of the whole issue of abortion. Since 1973, in the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade, an estimated 48.6 million babies have been aborted in this country, according to the National Right to Life Committee. And if taking of innocent life pollutes the land, then how are we in America today? Not in a good place, I wouldn't think. So how should we as Christians respond? Well, I think in a number of ways. I think God will lead some to seek to change the laws. And if God leads you to do that, that's a wonderful calling. I think God calls us to work, uh, to love pregnant mothers, to help with adoptions and give people alternatives, to adopt children ourselves, to love those who were rejected by our world. There's a lot of ways we can seek to cherish life in our world by loving and caring and reaching out. I want to talk just specifically about Down syndrome babies. A 2002 literature review of elective abortion rates found that 91 to 93 percent of pregnancies in the United States with a diagnosis of Down syndrome were terminated. 91 to 93 percent. People find out they're going to have a Down syndrome baby they abort it. If we want to learn to cherish life, I think we ought to do what Sarah Palin has done. As many of you know, she has a Down syndrome baby born last April, and she was questioned about it. Why didn't you, like everyone else, abort the baby? His name is Trigg. Palin said she and Todd feel blessed and chosen by God. In their eyes, she said, he's absolutely perfect. She writes, children are the most precious and promising ingredient in this mixed up world we live in down here on earth. Trigg is no different, except he has one extra chromosome, Palin wrote. As for people who think a baby like Trigg shouldn't even be born, look around, the governor wrote. Who is perfect or even normal? She's chosen to honor life. So should we. So should we. That's our responsibility, to worship God and to cherish life in the best way we can. What is God's responsibility in return? Well, as we've heard in the scripture reading this morning, he's promised to protect life. He's promised that he will never again destroy all life in a flood or a similar natural disaster. He will not allow us to destroy the world. He will only do it in his timing at the final judgment. We need never fear 
that he'll do that or allow that to happen. He will preserve the earth and therefore we can trust in him and walk with him and wait for that day when he does come back. And it says that he put a sign in the sky to always remind us and remind him of this covenant he has made, the rainbow. This word for rainbow is literally the word for like bow, as in bow and arrow. Almost everywhere in Scripture, that is how it's used, for a weapon of war. And I love this picture of a rainbow because a rainbow is like a bow that's hung up in the sky. God has hung up his weapon of war and said, I will no longer be angry. I will leave opportunity for repentance. I want a covenant relationship with you. I will not destroy the earth again. I will give you much time to repent and turn to me. I've hung up my weapon in the sky. And every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder. And something else strikes me about this. If you were to put an arrow to this bow and shoot it, where would it go? It would go up, right? That's the way the bow is formed. I don't know that God intended this, but it just strikes me that ultimately in the final judgment, that's what God did. He took the arrow for us. He took the bullet for us. In the cross of Jesus Christ, he took the judgment I deserved, the judgment you deserved. That's his ultimate covenant with us. The new covenant, as we see, that is only hinted at here in Noah with the sacrifice that he made and and the importance of blood, don't drink the blood, and, and this hint of the rainbow that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This new covenant, God took the punishment on himself and he said, all you have to do is come to me. And he wants us to do the same things he told Noah to do. Worship him as a rescued people and cherish life as a gift from him that every breath, everything I have is a gift. And then we'll be living out our full humanity, what God created for us to be as a rescued people, rescued He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He rescued us from sin and death and the judgment to come. And therefore, let's worship him. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to take the bullet for us, take the arrow for us, that you died on the cross when we should have died on the cross. And we give you praise because we are a rescued people. That is our identity. Lord, help us to lay aside our rights, to not demand that life go our way in some arrogant way, but help us bow before you in worship and submission and thankfulness for what you have done to rescue us and set us free from ourselves. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.